You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, this is Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about the cardiovascular sports physical. Joining me is Dr. Molly Shaw. To introduce this topic, I wanted to say approximately 30 million children and adolescents participate in organized sports in the U.S. Pre-participation physical evaluation is recommended before the season begins, but should routinely be done at the pre-adolescent and adolescent annual well visits. The goal of this evaluation is to maximize safe participation in sports and identify medical problems that could have life-threatening complications like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Furthermore, we should identify conditions that may need treatment before participation, like hypertension. So that's why I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Molly Shaw to the podcast today to teach us a little bit more about the cardiovascular sports physical. So thanks for joining me. Thank you, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited to talk about this topic, especially uh, in February, which is Heart Month. Great. So the medical history is the most sensitive and specific component of the exam, detecting conditions that preclude participation in sports. And cardiovascular questions that are a part of this include whether or not there's a past history of hypertension, murmurs, high cholesterol, Kawasaki, or heart infections. In addition, we also ask about if there's any history of syncope, near syncope, dizziness, angina, or palpitations during exercise. However, a history of chest pain is a common pediatric complaint. So what about that history of chest pain should raise concern for an organic etiology that should kind of raise a red flag for us in primary care? That's a great question, Katie. As you said, uh, the pediatric complaint of chest pain is very common. In reality, cardiac causes of chest pain are relatively uncommon. However, they are the ones we worry about the most because we worry about missing an important diagnosis that can have catastrophic consequences. So the chief historical elements that should raise concern for an organic cardiac etiology include, number one, any kind of chest pain that occurs with exertion. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we, we worry about underlying causes such as cardiomyopathy or other structural heart disease. Chest pain associated with lightheadedness, dizziness, palpitations may suggest an arrhythmic etiology. Mm-hmm. Sudden onset of chest pain that radiates to the left shoulder and jaw is suggestive of coronary ischemia, which is very rare in children, but certainly if someone had a past medical history of Kawasaki disease, Mm -hmm. or even teenagers who have a history of drug use, Uh we would worry about um, coronary ischemia. Mm -hmm. Sudden onset of crushing or tearing chest pain that may or may not radiate to the back or the shoulder can herald an aortic dissection, especially if a patient has physical features of connective tissue disease, such as Marfan syndrome. And then finally, any child who appears ill, has fever, dyspnea, and then complains of chest pain, we would worry about myocarditis. And especially when this is associated with abnormal physical findings, such as tachycardia, a gallop, muffled heart sounds, a friction rub, we would worry about infective um, causes or inflammatory causes, such as pericarditis. Mm -hmm. Great. Those are some good 
tips to help us kind of narrow down when we worry about, like you said, this very common complaint and when we should work it up further. Similarly, feeling tired or short of breath more quickly than peers during exercise can be cardiac and etiology. It could be deconditioning or related to exercise-induced bronchospasm. So how can we tease these apart given that we see so many student athletes with asthma and overweight students who are newly starting an exercise program because we told them to? Another great question. Um, I will preface this by saying that generally speaking in previously healthy people, who do not have a history, a prior history of cardiac problems, and who have a normal baseline physical examination, cardiac abnormalities would be a rare cause of exercise-induced shortness of breath. However, the two main conditions we would worry about are congestive heart failure mm -hmm. and pulmonary hypertension, because uh, symptoms of shortness of breath could be due to low cardiac output or diminished pulmonary reserve in these two situations. Mm -hmm. But typically, these are also accompanied by other baseline cardiac abnormalities, such as tachycardia, tachypnea, hepatomegaly, and abnormal auscultation. Sometimes arrhythmias can be misinterpreted as shortness of breath with mm -hmm. exercise, but typically a good historian will be able to tell you that it's not just shortness of breath, but the patient is also experiencing a, an irregular or a fast heart rate. Now, the athletes I worry about are those that are conditioned athletes who now develop a new onset of shortness of breath mm -hmm. so that their exercise performance is limited at similar or lower workloads. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we worry about uh, developing cardiomyopathy where mm -hmm. a previously healthy individual is now no longer able to perform exercises at the same level. And whenever in doubt whether it is exercise-induced asthma or other causes, I think a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test is extremely useful mm -hmm. to make the distinction. As far as deconditioned individuals, you know, the basic principle is that aerobic conditioning should improve deconditioning. Mm -hmm. However, again, when there is a doubt whether the etiology is uh, just a deconditioned individual versus an organic cause, some objective findings in a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test may be extremely useful. Mm -hmm. uh, you could run these patients on a sprint protocol and assess pulmonary function tests. You could also rule out uh, vocal cord dysfunction mm -hmm. that, that can sometimes cause shortness of breath with exercise, and you may be able to uncover a cardiac etiology. Mm -hmm. And these are the exercise stress tests we do through a pediatric cardiologist. This Absolutely. is something that primary care doctors should be ordering and interpreting. I, I, I agree, but it's, uh, it's probably just good to know at the back of your mind that right. sometimes the history or the symptomatology may not be enough to make the distinction and a more objective test mm -hmm. may be needed. Great, that's good to know. So there's also a lot of family history questions as part of this evaluation, and certain conditions raise concern which seem obvious. Certainly if you have a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Marfan syndrome, long QT syndrome, et cetera, then we know that that might put you at risk. But a family history of death from heart disease before the age of 50 is also listed there. And so what do we make of that? Because sometimes we don't know why, and oftentimes the family doesn't know why the person died at such a young age. That's, that's another great question. I, I think the basis of including this in the pre-participation evaluation questionnaire is that 
unexpected or unexplained sudden death under the age of 50 in otherwise healthy individuals is very rare. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the etiologies may be a cardiovascular cause, such as a, an inherited cardiac channelopathy or a cardiomyopathy, which was either undiscovered or undiagnosed, a sudden cardiac death may have been the first symptom for that individual. Mm -hmm. So there, there really is no preceding history. Also keep in mind that everything we know about diseases like long QT syndrome and hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, a lot of this is fairly recent knowledge. Mm -hmm. So uh, when, when an individual says that their grandparents died at the age of 30 or 40 or 50, yeah. um, in, in that era, the diagnosis may not have been revealed right. just so because, they so they didn't even know. Mm -hmm. um, we, we try and ask these questions in great detail because sometimes the circumstances of death, if known, are very important. Mm -hmm. For example, if a family member who was an expert swimmer died in a swimming pool, right. then that's a red flag, right? right? So again, if, if a family member died suddenly but prior to death was having unexplained syncope or seizures, mm -hmm. then that's a red flag for genetic cardiovascular diseases. Right. So it's not simply um, just the history of sudden death, but any information surrounding the circumstances or history of that individual uh, may help. Right, sure, that's a good tip too. So we talked about deconditioning before. So on the opposite end, many of the student athletes that we see have a resting sinus bradycardia. Sometimes we're shocked like that <laughs> how low these heart rates go. So. When do we need to worry about these low heart rates in athletes? All right, so published literature states that a resting heart rate less than 60 beats per minute is present in greater than 80% of highly trained athletes. Wow, that's a lot. And that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, even a heart rate as low as 30 may be completely normal in an otherwise asymptomatic athlete who has a normal physical exam. But I share your concern, and I would have the same concern if a patient was extremely bradycardic. Mm -hmm. um, I think the best thing to do at that time, if there was if there was a question, is to get an electrocardiogram sure. to assess the rhythm and make sure there isn't an inherent conduction disorder. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So err on the side of safety, but know that it is common. And if they're asymptomatic. And have a normal, normal exam, absolutely. Okay, great. So speaking of exam, walk us through how we do a good cardiovascular exam in the pre-participation sports physical. So what are what am I looking for other than a murmur? I start with the general appearance of the patient as you would for, mm -hmm. for any, any other patient that you're examining in your office, looking for signs of distress, nutritional status, dysmorphism, mm -hmm. or any physical features that may lead you to a genetic syndrome such as Marfan syndrome. Mm -hmm. We want to be sure there's no evidence of cyanosis, so really looking at central or the oral mucosa is important. Right. Um, respirations should be unlabored. We look at the neck to make sure there's no jugular venous distension. These are things that you can gather information very quickly by just inspection. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that the patient's heart rate and blood pressure are age appropriate. Um, and appropriate for the patient's clinical condition, and we prefer to get the blood pressure measured in at least both arms. Okay. And finally, for the cardiac examination, we should assess for a quiet precordium, a normal heart rate rhythm, and heart sounds. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes a loud second heart sound could indicate pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. uh, we assess for, as you said, presence or absence of murmurs, but also clicks, gallops, and rubs. And it is typically helpful to assess murmurs both in a supine mm -hmm. and a standing position. And we want to ensure that uh, the brachial or radial pulses are equal to the femoral pulses, so there is no brachiofemoral delay. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to remember in the context of sports participation that the physical examination may be completely normal in patients who don't have an organic heart disease but may have inherent arrhythmias or cardiac channelopathies. Mm -hmm. Right. Remind us, since you mentioned listening for murmurs in the sitting and standing positions, what we're looking for. Yeah, so this is particularly in the context when you're trying to assess for conditions such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, mm -hmm. uh, where there's a dynamic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And uh, a, a simple way to think about this is that um, any maneuvers that decrease the preload, which means decrease left ventricular uh, volume mm -hmm. is going to accentuate the murmur. Okay. So uh, if you want to take this one step further, if you have a patient in a squatting position and then have them stand up, this is going to decrease momentarily the venous return to the heart. Mm -hmm. So the heart is relatively empty at that point, mm -hmm. and the left ventricular outflow tract obstruction is likely to increase dynamically, mm -hmm. and the murmur will be accentuated. When they're when they are stand. when they go from a squatting to a standing position or from a supine to a standing position. Great. So listen to them while they're squatting or supine, and then right away after they stand up. Yeah. Great. And and just uh, um, converse to that is if the murmur goes away with a maneuver that increases their afterload, and this could be a very brisk handshake. Mm -hmm. So you hear a murmur, and then you perform a brisk handshake with your patient, mm -hmm. listening to the patient at the same time, and the murmur is reduced, then again, that's, that's a sign of a dynamic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, which is now reduced in this maneuver, and so the murmur is actually softer. Right. So next time your cardiologist is shaking your hand, you know it's a trick. It's a trick, <laughs> yes. All right. So what are some of the other key history and physical exam findings in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which you just mentioned, which is obviously one of the things that we're all the most fearful of when we're doing this exam on athletes? So. Right. So as always, start with the history, and the history kind of uh, might tune you into performing a more focused cardiac examination. Okay. So any history of exercised symptoms, such as palpitations, chest pain, shortness of breath, presyncope or syncope, again, exercise-related symptoms mm -hmm. are of uh, vital importance, yeah. or a history of unexplained syncope is important. Okay. Um, in terms of family history, history of known hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or unexplained sudden death in close relatives, especially if it occurred with exercise, is important. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something people may remember to ask or not, but as a cardiologist, whenever there's a family history of sudden cardiac death, I always ask families if they have access to an autopsy report mm. because hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is something that should be seen on autopsy right. if that was the root cause. 
Moving on to the physical examination, if there is significant left ventricular hypertrophy, the apical impulse is prominent and may be laterally displaced. In terms of murmurs, typically there's a harsh mid-systolic ejection murmur at the left sternal border, and we talked about the maneuvers that mm -hmm. we can do to, to uncover this murmur. Um, sometimes there can be an additional holosystolic murmur because sometimes patients also have mitral regurgitation mm. with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And unfortunately, in cases where the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenotype is minimal, the physical examination may actually be normal. normal right, which is what we all fear. Absolutely. So shifting a little bit to congenital heart disease, thankfully most of these kids are followed closely by cardiology who will make specific recommendations about their exercise restrictions and sports participation. However, there are some kids who have an ASD or a VSD who may not see cardiology routinely for a number of years, might have seen them in the NICU and never again, um, either by your decision or the parents. Um, so do we need to worry about clearing these kids with these small ASDs or VSDs for sports in primary care, or should they see cardiology first? Right, so for patients with documented mm -hmm. trivial or small ASDs and VSDs, and uh, typically these will be unrepaired, right. if there's a clear documentation that there is absence of pulmonary hypertension mm -hmm. and there's no evidence of volume overload, the current participation guidelines allow these patients to play sports at all levels. Okay. And this is the same recommendation for repaired ASDs and VSDs where there is no residual pulmonary hypertension. Right. So I think when there is clear documentation in this particular population, PCPs mm -hmm. can clear them for sports participation. But if there is any um, question of hemodynamics mm -hmm. or pulmonary hypertension or lack of documentation, we're right. always happy to see these patients. Great. I mean, sometimes you get them and they're a new patient to you and the parents just say they have a hole in their heart and yeah. you don't know more than that. So and I think those patients should definitely should be yeah. seen by the cardiologist. Great. So as you mentioned, the majority of sudden cardiac deaths in athletes are due to arrhythmias. So who should we do screening EKGs on and why don't we just do these universally? Okay, so this is a, a very complicated yes. question <laughs> with a complicated re reply. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to start out saying that ideally you want to screen a population which has the highest pretest probability of getting a positive result. Right. The reality is that as tragic as sudden cardiac death in a young person is, Sudden cardiac death events during sports are actually extremely low. Right, thankfully. Thankfully. So it is difficult to define a particular population that should be screened mm -hmm. to produce adequate results. Now, there is really no compelling reason to confine screening to just young competitive athletes right. and exclude non-athletes, right? right? Because it's likely that the absolute number of sudden deaths are actually higher in the non-athletes right. since that's the larger population. Mm -hmm. So I think because of the limitations of the EKG as a screening test, and we can talk more about that, mm -hmm. as long as screening with an EKG is performed in the context of a history and physical, mm -hmm 
as well as with close physician involvement and high quality control of how that EKG is being done and, and interpreted. Right. And as long as everyone involved knows that an EKG has false positives, mm -hmm. false negatives, and ambiguous results, mm -hmm. and there may be further investigation and costs based on this initial test, you know, screening with an EKG may be reasonable in small cohorts, such as high schools and communities and colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And EKGs are a snapshot in time, too, right? So, like you mentioned before, having a normal EKG may not rule out all of the arrhythmias that could potentially result in a sudden death. Absolutely. So, just to mention a few obstacles to the whole idea of EKG screening, we talked about false negatives and false positives. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain um, inherited arrhythmia disorders where the EKG, as you said, could be normal on one day and abnormal on another day. Right. Uh, there are disorders such as catecholamine-sensitive polymorphic ventricular tachycardia where the resting EKG is always normal. Mm -hmm. And it's not until you exercise the patient that the abnormality is uncovered. Right. Uh, similarly, in other lethal conditions like an anomalous coronary artery from the wrong aortic sinus, mm -hmm. the resting EKG is going to be normal. So um, the EKG by itself, and, and even with physical examination and great history taking, may not be an adequate uh, screening tool. Mm -hmm. Also, there's the issue of cost efficiency and resources uh, versus the low event rates. Uh, currently, the need for repetitive EKG screening, especially in adolescents, given the possibility of a developing phenotype, right. should, be, should be considered. And finally, I think one needs to recognize that no single screening strategy will be able to detect all the conditions associated with sudden cardiac death. And I think um, the point I would like to get across is that because of this reason, we should also advocate for an emergency action plan. Mm -hmm. so, so know that every sudden cardiac death disease is not going to be unmasked by a screening strategy. So what do we do when a child goes down? And I think uh, the community mm -hmm. and primary care providers can be great advocates for having an emergency plan in schools and communities um, to enable people to get CPR trained and have AEDs accessible and available in the community, especially schools. Right. Yeah, that's a very important point. So have pre-participation sports evaluations been successful at decreasing sudden cardiac death? Again, there are no reproducible studies that have shown that the screening strategy has been successful at decreasing sudden cardiac death. Mm -hmm. But that's probably because the event rate is so low that right. you cannot show a measurable difference. Right. Now, very interestingly, from a global perspective, cardiovascular screening is practiced systematically in, in all athletes in only three countries in the world. Hmm. The United States that performs um, history and physical, right. and Israel and Italy that uh, perform history and physical and also an EKG. Okay. Now in Italy, this type of screening with an EKG was first implemented in a region called uh, Veneto, where, um, as a background, there is a high prevalence of arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. So when they implemented the screening program, they were able to show that over 30 years, there was actually a dramatic decrease in sudden cardiac death with sports. Wow. 
because they were able to pinpoint this particular disease. Right. Now, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy is not prevalent as it is in Italy in the rest of the world, at okay. least not to that extent. So right. they were able to show a marked reduction in, in sudden cardiac death based on identifying patients with a particular disease and disqualifying them from sports. Right. But it's not generalizable. But it's not generalizable. And in fact, in Israel, with the same strategy, they showed that there was no difference mm. uh, with pre-participation evaluation with an EKG uh, from an era when they had this in place versus they did not have it in place. Mm -hmm. There was no reduction in hmm. mortality. Interesting. Well, it seems like the more we do, maybe we'll be gathering more data and it's helpful. Um, we may be picking up things that aren't necessarily causes of sudden cardiac death, but other cardiac disease and finding kids who need to see a cardiologist for other reasons. I think that's a very important point that the pre-participation evaluation should not be aimed just to uncover who is at risk for sudden cardiac death, mm -hmm. but also other cardiovascular abnormalities that can be treated in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, if we have someone who we think needs to see CHOP cardiology, how do we refer and, and get them to you in a timely manner? So the best way for a primary care provider to uh, get a referral to cardiology and also have the ability to actually talk to a cardiologist is to call 1-800-TRY-CHOP. Yep. And um, if you are a primary care provider in the CHOP system, you can place a cardiology consult through the EPIC system. Right. And you can also call our cardiology access line, which is 215-590-4040. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. We're happy to have you taking care of our patients and helping us keep them safe in primary care and on the sports fields. I'm delighted to be of any help that I can. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.